If anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and it shall, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. And he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, one of whom shall take from it, from it his handful of fine flour and oil with all the frankincense. And the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his son's. It is most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. And if you bring an offering of grain offering baked in an oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. But if you offer, if your offering is a grain offering baked in a pan, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces, pour oil on it. It's a grain offering. If your offering is a grain offering baked in a covered pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. You shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord, and when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. Then the priest shall take from the grain offering a memorial portion and burn it on the altar. It is an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And what is left of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his son's. It is most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. Now look at verse 11 with me. No grain offering in which you shall bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall burn no leaven nor any honey on any, in any offering to the Lord made by fire. <clears throat> As for the offering of the first fruits, you shall offer them to the Lord, but they shall not be burned on the altar for a sweet aroma. And every offering of your grain offering, you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of the Lord your God, or the covenant of your God, to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of your first fruits to the Lord, then you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits green heads of green grain roasted in the fire or on the fire, grain beaten from full heads. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. Then the priest shall burn the memorial portion, part of its beaten grain and the part of its oil with all the frankincense, as an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you may think, what in the world did I get myself into? Pray with me, would you please? Father, thank you. Thank you for the blessing today of being able to assemble, to seek your face, to love on you, and to know that you have things to tell every one of us today. I pray for every heart here, my own included, Lord, that our hearts will be open, ready to receive what it is you wish to put in our hearts today. I pray, Lord, that you would meet every one of us right where we're at, whether we were raised in the church or whether, Lord, today we've never even heard of you before this week. And I pray, Lord, that you would minister right where we're at and bring us to you. Give us understanding, Lord, of things beyond our humanity, that today we would be overwhelmed with your goodness, that today we would turn to you and Lord, that today we would find ourselves gloriously encompassed in your love. 
So I pray you immerse me in your spirit that you would be seen. That you would anoint me with your spirit. That you would empower me to do what I cannot humanly do. And today, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would become upon every believer here to open our eyes and hearts to not only receive, but to give. To offer ourselves as a blessing to others today. So Jesus, be exalted. Be glorified. Let your word burst open and come alive before each of us. And may we have so much fun in your word as we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Now, if you're new to scripture and you came in for the first time and you walked in and we started the book of Leviticus and you think, what in the world is this? This is what the Bible is about? Well, yes, in some way, yes. But let me start with this. In the book of Psalms, in Jesus, well, it'll have been quoted of Jesus. He says, Behold, I come in the volume or in the entirety of the book. Jesus had made very clear for what it's worth. In John chapter 5, he had been questioned, and he's coming at the religious leaders of the day. And in verse 39, he says, You search the scriptures, thinking by them you possess eternal life, but these are they that testify of me. What Jesus said is, Every scripture is going to point you to him if you're willing to look. Now understand from a Hebraic mindset, the classic is the question for the quest. The idea is quite simple. Something is laid before you and you go, hmm, I wonder what that means. And then you're on the quest to discover. That's the idea here. If you remember, those of you who are familiar with the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life as he walked on earth from birth to resurrection and, and ascension, Jesus approaches the religious leaders and there they turn to him because they're upset because he's sitting with tax collectors and other people they would deem as sinners. Strange because they didn't deem themselves as which. And there Jesus turns to them in Matthew 12 and he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. See, what Jesus did is what everyone did among the Hebrews and that is they put you with a question or something to start a quest. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What does that really mean, boys? When they return and condemn him again for the same thing, Jesus says then, had you learned what it meant, had you done your homework, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the people before you. There's a classic thing here to look at something like this and go, now how in the world do we find Jesus in a text like this. The book of Leviticus, for what it's worth, takes place for roughly a month. And in the chapters we'll see here, it's primarily a technical book for those who are practicing the priesthood. Leviticus, from the third tribe of Jacob or Israel, the tribe of Levi, those people were servants in the temple and they were called Levites. And with that, then Leviticus, in essence, was a technical book on how to go about the proper practices within this particular church setting back in the days we're looking roughly right now at about 1400 B.C. Yet if you follow me in that, I'm, a full, I'm fully convinced that the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. And if all I did is I took a look and saw what Scripture said about these things, I would start developing some things that makes it so clear to me 
But here's where it starts. <clears throat> this idea of bringing a grain sacrifice is actually nothing new. As a matter of fact, the first time we see some form of sacrifice brought, there is a comparison between two. Listen, go back if you have your Bibles or your apps. Go back to the book of Genesis for a moment and go back to Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> Remember, Genesis means beginnings. It's a great, what a perfect book to start a Bible. A book that's called Beginnings. In the book of Genesis, chapter 3, man and woman have just fallen. They've done what God told them not to. Eve walked into it. She was deceived. Adam, on the other hand, literally, knowingly disobeyed. And with that then, God says this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. To Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree in which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, <coughs> excuse me, and dust you shall return. In the beginning God tells us, and now this is not God punishing Adam, God just says this is what happens in a fallen world. Welcome to a fallen world, friends. And here it is, ready? You're going to set your hands to work, and it's going to produce thorns. And then you're going to have to work harder. And you're going to sweat, and you're going to work, and you're going to sweat, and it'll produce some thorns. You're going to have to work through those thorns, and sooner or later it'll produce the fruit you want it to. Before this point, you set your hand to something, everything it produced was good. Now you live in a world, well, now sin is part of this world. Hey, let me just say this, complex fluorocarbons, not recycling, hairspray, they are not the cause of the destruction of this world. Oh, they can speed it up, but whether you know it or not, you're polishing the Titanic. What's taking this world down, according to Romans, and it's very clear, is sin. This world has now succumbed to its fallen state we know as entropy. Order goes to disorder now, like it or not. You'll never throw all your socks in the drawer at random and expect them all to wind up piled perfectly in pairs. But you can expect them to be put in pairs, thrown into a, to a washing machine, and three of them will be missing every time. Where did those socks go? They go the same place as all the other things. We have cables here from these services. No matter how much you organize them, they will be... And we, Some gnome sneaks out in the middle of the night and tangles them after we've put them in perfect order and put them back away. Understand here, God says it's going to be work. It's going to be hard work. In the next chapter, we have twins, Cain and Abel. You don't have to believe me, but it says that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she bore forth a child, and then she bore forth a second. <laughs> he knew her once, she bore forth two children. That doesn't take a brilliant person to figure out. I happen to be a twin myself. And before you ask if it's identical, she's a girl. We're not identical twins. In Genesis chapter 4, the two of them bring an offering to God. Look at verse 3 with me. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain... The firstborn, by the way. Cain, by the way, means containment. Cainan 
brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. The second child that comes out, his name is Chabel. Can you say Chabel? Chabel means nothing. That's what it means. How would you like to be named that? I mean, talk about living in the shadow of your big brother. Your brother's like the containment of all good things. Who are you? What's your name? Nothing. That would stink. But nothing brings then an offering as well. Now notice what it says in verse 4. It says, Chabel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and of their fat. The word also tends to infer that he may have brought grain. We don't know, but we are sure that he brought an offering of an animal. It says then, and the Lord respected Chabel and his offering. He didn't just respect his offering, but he respected Chabel because of it. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Now, you're going to learn a lot about Cain if you read on in that, because what God's going to do is he's like, look, if you do right, won't I accept you? And instead, what Cain does, instead of changing his ways, is he decides to change the rules. And that'll be the same for many. If I would approach you and say, this is what the Lord has provided for you, you could say, I don't like that, I'd rather change the rules. But God's not into that. Now, what's the difference between Cain's and Abel's offerings? Cain offered an offering of the ground. Chabel offered an offering of an animal. Well, we'll get to the book of Hebrews, and in Hebrews 11:4, it tells us the biggest differences is that Chabel offered his offering by faith. He trusted God. Cain did not. But I remind you, put all that together. This is what it is. God says, you're going to work hard, and finally you'll get something out of it. What Cain offered to God was his hard work. He didn't offer to hard work for God. He offered his hard work and said, look at how hard I've worked. Reward me. <clears throat> Meanwhile, Habel came asking God for his grace. Not for a paycheck, but a gift. The difference is radical. The ultimate result, Cain won't like it and decides instead of changing his ways, he removes the competition and murders his brother. Now, that's how this whole thing begins. We have two offerings, one that's offered by faith and one that's an offering of your own work. Check out, God, what I've done. Isn't it good? Which God is never impressed by what we do for him. Because truth be told, God wants to do everything with us. Now, please hear me in this. By the time we get to this chapter in, in Leviticus, we will have passed by the fact that grain was used, if you remember, to save all of Egypt before they get raised up by Joseph. And then it was used to restore Joseph and his family. The Joseph, who, by the way, would be one of those 12 tribes, the son of Israel. Now, here we have our second of five offerings in the book of Leviticus. It is an offering of grain. Now, there is an acceptable offering of grain, and there's an unacceptable offering of grain. That's what's clear here. <coughs> but it's interesting because when you look at when the offerings have been offered of grain, it has always been with one of those animal sacrifices. It's never been by itself. In Exodus, for what it's worth, chapter 29, verse 41, it says, And the other lamb you'll offer at twilight, and you shall offer it with the grain offerings and the drink offerings, as you did in the morning. Every morning, every night, there is an offering of an animal. And with that offering of an animal, there was an offering of grain. 
It was offered, though, by faith. And this is what we're going to see in it. Now, look at If you're new to this and you look and you go, wow, I'm part of PETA and I'm actually a vegetarian. I can't believe they did this. This is horrible. Please understand it was supposed to be horrible in the sense that this, this was in an essence an offering of yourself to God and a recognition of your sin. This was not supposed to be something you laissez-faire through. This wasn't something you were nonchalant. It is not something like, you go, oh, God's a God of grace. He's going to forgive me anyways. And we take the whole thing lightly. Hey, in those days, you took your pet to the store was the idea here. This was a serious deal. And God wants us to be serious about those things that separate us from Him. Because nothing is more important to God than our relationship with Him. Nothing is more important. Now notice, by the way, for what it's worth, so let's start doing this investigation. Now we start checking into this from regards to Scripture as we see in this text. Notice there are three key ingredients that you add to this offering. And we see in verses 1, 2, and 3 to start us off. The basic chapter, by the way, 1 through 2 and 3, overview of the grain offerings, 4 to 10 if you're going to bake it. If you're going to make a cake uh, or a biscuit or a wafer. And then verses 12 through 16, what happens with the first fruit. So it's only three simple sections. Notice the three things that are in this. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, If you offer such an offering to the Lord, it shall be an offering of fine flour. He shall put oil on it and frankincense. Do you see that? Look at verse 2. He'll bring it to the priest. He'll take his handful of fine flour with the oil and all the frankincense. Oil is going to be used in verses 1, 2, 4, 5, 6, 7, 15, and 16. It'll actually be spoken of 204 verses in Scripture. Oil is a pretty serious issue. The frankincense in this will be used in 1, 2, 15, and 16. A lot's going to be said about frankincense, or at least in requirement. The third ingredient that is key to this, this is sort of our recipe. Take a look at verse 13, just so you see it's all-encompassing. Flip there with me. In verse 13 it says, And every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings that you offer, you shall offer salt. So, in your recipe, here it is. You take flour, and with that flour, add oil. And with that oil, add frankincense. And with that frankincense, add salt. Okay, quick, without looking, let's see if you can answer. What are those three things that you're going to be adding to flour? Oil, frankincense, salt. Very nicely done. See, look at you. So some of you are alive. You're not in a coma. That's good. Now, now understand, here's the deal between this and a lot of the other. This is the one offering, by the way, where the idea of it's simple. You have put a labor to it. You have worked. But the difference is you're not working for a paycheck. You're working and you're offering back to God what he's given you. Now understand, we live in an agrarian culture here. Now not today, but in those days we lived off the land. And there were two things that were always considered, well three really, that were considered a miracle of God no matter how hard you tried. One was land in regards to the... You could, you could plant, you could try to water, you could put it in rows, you could find the best seed, you could think you have the best soil, but if it doesn't rain, you've got no crops. And that's a miracle. I mean, in the end of it all, no matter how hard you work, it's going to be a miracle if you get it. Now, this is a country, by the way, where we have a lot of rain. But, you know, when, just a few years ago, we were actually, do you remember this? We had a hose ban. Why did we have a hose ban? Because we were in a drought, which always seemed a little strange because it still rained like 250 days of the year, right? But that just shows you what happens. That's what happens in regards to that. That was one of those areas we considered a miracle. The second one? Falling in love. It's a miracle. 
Now, some of you don't think that's probably a miracle because you're young and cute. But there will be a day when you realize there's a difference between being attracted and falling in love. And for somebody really to fall in love, I mean, when they commit to you for the rest of their life, it's a miracle. And you know, you can't, like, no matter what you do, no matter how much you doll yourself up or pump yourself up or suck out the bad and pump in the new and whatever, you know, nip and tuck and all that, in the end of it all, someone falling in love with you is still a miracle. And the third is that precious little one right there, having a child. Because no matter how hard you try, some cases you it's like, it's amazing. Some people, it just seems like they sneeze and they have five children. There are other people, it seems like they've been working on it for 15 years. It's a miracle. Now, understand the reason I say that is, is that when you set your hands to things like that, and I mean, I'm specifically in regards to the ground here, it's still a miracle of God. And what you want to do is give back to God what he's given you. That's the idea here. And there's the thing. So we have these three ingredients. That's key. One other thing on this, and then we'll actually develop this, and that's really all we have for this for the particular message. There are two things that cannot be in this particular recipe. Look at that with me really quick, and then we'll develop that. <coughs> Excuse me. Look at verse 11. Okay, just read verse 11 and tell me what are the two things you cannot have with these grain sacrifices. Leaven. And honey, excellent. Leaven and honey. And you go, why in the world? I like honey on my things. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. Here we go. You ready? Buckle up. Here's our three things. Our first thing, by the way, we have again is oil. Oil needs to be on every one of these things. We'll see it in regards to those that are just basic and raw from the beginning and the end and those things that are baked as well. Now, here was the idea. Some of this, as you see, a good portion of this is going to go to the priests. Now, understand the priest didn't draw a salary. The priest didn't live off of the money of the temple. The priest actually took what was brought by the people. So when you were thankful to the Lord for what the Lord has done in your increase, you've plowed the ground, you've, you've put seed in the ground, rain has come, you've gotten a great harvest, and with that, then you're offering it to the Lord. Some of it gets burned as a memorial to the Lord, and the rest of it gets handed over, by the way, then to the priest, because that's what they feed their families with. And you're talking about, in a case like this, about 36,400 people at least that you're looking at that are on service at a given moment. It's a lot of people to feed. Now listen, in regards to oil, it says this in Genesis 28, just to kind of follow us on it. Genesis 28:18, Genesis 35:14, that Jacob introduces oil in this manner, that he took it and he anointed a stone that he used that, that covered that was a pillow for his head, and he anointed a pillar in both cases where God had met him. And what he did by pouring oil on it is he gave that stone significance. He gave that pillar significance. In Psalm 89, verse 20, it says, With my holy oil I have anointed him, speaking of the king. We know that every king and every high priest was anointed. Remember how Aaron is to be anointed before the people. We're going to actually see that in Leviticus chapter 8. The oil will be poured on, and by the point we'll actually be in review in Psalm 133 when it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the oil dripping off of the beard of Aaron. You get the idea that just this idea of this guy covered in oil. One of the things that we definitely see in regards to oil, whether that be Aaron or Saul or David or the kings that would follow or the prophets that would follow, is that oil carried with it significance or power. 
It was interesting. The oil in it didn't inherently have it. I thought that was interesting. It wasn't like you poured oil and the oil gave you power. It was because what the oil carried with it was that empowerment, that significance that came from one in authority granted then to another. In Psalm 23, 5, perhaps many of you are familiar with that psalm. When it says, you prepare a table before me. And it says, you refresh or anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. In Psalm 45, verse 7, it says, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness. In Psalm 104, verse 5, it says that oil will make the face shine. One thing oil does inherently bring with it is refreshment. And oil will carry refreshment. It's a hot day. And instead of pouring water that evaporates immediately, you go into a house and they actually cover your feet and often your head with oil. And what that does is it kind of cools you off. So oil can carry with it authority or significance. Oil can carry with it refreshment. The third thing, and we know this, for instance, from Psalm 51, 7, where it says, Purge me with hyssop and I I shall be clean. They still use it in Israel to this day. If you remember the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, when the Samaritan finds the man who had been beaten and taken over by robbers, he covers him in oil and wine. Because oil is often used as an agent for healing. It's actually a vehicle for it. In James chapter 5, verse 14, it says about those that are sick, let them call on the elders of the church, and them anointing them with oil will heal the sick. Now understand, in this, the inherent quality is that of refreshment. The rest is what the oil carries with it. Significance, power, healing. Scripturally, and it's made clear, for instance, in 1 Samuel 6.13, that oil is a symbol for the Holy Spirit. One of the ways that Scripture is written with Hebrews is a, is a parallelism. They'll say one thing over here, and they'll say another over here, and this is supposed to equal this. And he talks about the horn of oil being poured upon David like the Holy Spirit being poured upon him. And can I just say this? No work do you offer God that hasn't been done by God's Holy Spirit. Anything else that you've done has been done in the flesh. Don't expect God to be blessed by that. See, look at this. Please understand, it isn't that what you're trying to do is actually trying to appease God. This isn't a guy sitting up somewhere on a power trip waiting to see how well you perform to see whether or not he applauds you. And that's the way that God has been represented. And it's time to clean out our closets and get this thing right. My God actually did the performance and he wants you to evaluate it. And what he did, because we were sinners, is he came down to earth, clothed himself with flesh, got beat to death on a cross, hung there for our sins, and then rose again from the grave on the third day. And then he says, how you like me now? What will you do with that? You are the ones who have to make the choice. That's the key in this, is that God did the work. But once you give your life to Christ, there's a part of you that feels indebted because, look, you've saved me from my guilt and my shame. You've saved me from the penalty of all of that. What do I do with this? And I should try to pay you back. I should serve you. The problem is we try to do it in a way it's almost like it's a paycheck. As if somehow we're going to try to get to that place where finally we're even with God. But I tell you what, if I offered one of my children to die on your stead, there is nothing you could do to pay me back. There's nothing you could do to make it even. Because that's just not possible. 
And when I want to come and offer my service to God, and this grain is a symbol of my service to God, I don't want to offer service to God and go, look at God, how hard I worked, how I sweat and I stayed up late and I studied and I sat with that person that was hard to deal with and I gave when I felt like it hurt. And look at how I did all of this. Jesus actually tells us a story about that. He tells us about two men who go to the church to pray. In one case, it's a Pharisee. Now, understand me. If you don't know what a Pharisee is, he was basically the rock star religious guy of the day. No matter what background you come from, someone's famous for their piety. And he comes in, and then you pick the other guy, and he's the guy, he says, was a tax collector. Now, for them, a tax collector was a guy who bailed on Judaism to go collect money to give to the enemy. He was the most despised. He was the perfect villain for every story. When the two men went to church, the Pharisee stood up. And he raised his face and arms and hands and mouth to God. And he said, I'm so thankful I'm not like that guy. Because that guy, he's a miserable sinner. I give. Look at how much I give. Look at how I tithe. I give to these charities. Oh, and I pray, you know my long and lengthy prayers, I do it anytime someone's looking. And oh, I fast. Oh, you know I fast, like, so people know it. Check out how religious this guy is. Says, but the other guy couldn't even lift his head to heaven. He beat his breast because he was hurting. He just said, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. And for every person that was in that room, Jesus was just about to kick them in the teeth of their own religion. Because everyone could nod, but everyone would have still thought that the Pharisee walked away, listened by God, applauded by God, and the other guy would have walked out of there, God going, hmm, change your ways. And this is God in the flesh who turns then and he says, but it was that guy that got listened to. That was the one who God stopped to listen to. Because this guy, he had eye trouble. I give, I tithe, I do. God's like, there's no room for me in your life. It's too much you. That guy, on the other hand, he knew he didn't belong before a holy God unless God gave him grace. What about you? Do you think if you stood before God, you could just say, I'm a good person, check out what I do, and God's going to applaud it, and that's good? When Jesus died to have a relationship with you and you are robbing him of that because you don't want to have a relationship with him, do you really think that's going to bless him? This has to be done by his spirit. It's Zechariah chapter 4 that tells us, not by might or by power. Because if you have that might or power, he gave it to you anyways. It's by my spirit. In Philippians chapter 2, when you read the whole verse, because it's kind of mean if you read half, when it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it says, for it is God who works within you to will to do and to do for his good pleasure. God created you to be electric, and then he made himself the thing that you plug into. It's that simple. And that's the first of our ingredients. Your offerings of your service to God. Are you giving him the credit? Is it his spirit that's done the work? The second of them, and they get a little quicker, is frankincense. The place where frankincense is mentioned the most, by the way, and you probably might not find that 
too unusual, is the book of the Song of Solomon, which is, by the way, sort of the PG-13, 12, rated 12 section of our scriptures. In that particular one, what we find in Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 6, and chapter 4, verse 10, is that it's a perfume specifically used towards intimacy. There are certain smells that carry with those smells history. My grandmother lived in St. Louis, Missouri. And for whatever reason, there was a family that lived near them that had a specific rotted garbage smell in their backyard. What's interesting is though that smell was pungent and nasty, I could smell it to this day and smile because it reminded me of grandmother's house, of Nan's house. We lived for 17 years, 18 years on the central coast of California in an old fishing town. Oh my goodness. Fish smell bad. And what smells worse than fish? Bait. And what smells worse than bait? Fishermen. Because they're covered in fish and bait. But that smell to this day makes me smile because I associate that smell with guys like Larry and Darren who came in after a two and a half week binge to drink all the alcohol they had on stock which should have, drunk, should have gotten an entire Russian army drunk with the vodka they had in their ship. They went out trawling for shrimp they came back with a terrible hangover and no shrimp. And they were very angry. And they were going to go rob some people because they needed some money. But strangely enough, they were walking by this building and they heard music coming out of it and they decided to pop in. The first thing they saw were a bunch of young kids. Young kids, you know, like in their 20s because I'm older now. And they had like Danishes muffins in their hands and they're like I'm so glad you're here and they knew they smelled and these kids and I'll just never forget we had this big guy in our fellowship and he came over and just gave the, one of the guys this big hug and the guy's like oh, mother he had no idea how to respond to that and they just kind of assumed oh this is a church so they came and they sat down and they just figured they'd sit down and everyone would kind of flee from them and they sat down and everyone got all excited and they kept thinking, those guys are going to get saved. And they just sat down and they all sat down, do you know about Jesus? And then they just came on him like, like seagulls on a bag of crisps. And that smell reminds me of that. I bet you have a few of those yourself. Smells you go, no, that probably would be bad if it wasn't for that. This particular smell... It smells like intimacy. Now that could be really bad if your intimacy has been perverted and made really cheap and trashed by lust. But listen to this verse in Song of Solomon. And here's one of those parallels. How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices. He says, wine, your love. Then he says, spices, your perfume. He compares this perfume to love. That's what the two 
relate to. And I get it. You see, the interesting thing about frankincense, if you think about it, is frankincense. That's what the word is. Is it's the one that is actually used for both perfume and incense. And if you think about what incense really is or was supposed to be, it's just if you think about it, incense is supposed to be perfume that naturally goes heavenward because you set it on fire. Of course, some of you are aware of the fact that in Matthew, it was one of the gifts that was offered to the baby Jesus. It's an expensive gift. And I realize, if I'm going to offer my service to God, is it really out of love? Out of intimacy? Or is it out of duty? Because some of you in here are probably very duty-driven, and you'll do it because you're told to. But when you do it because you're told to, it is an obligation. When you do it out of love, it's an opportunity. It's a radically different thing. And God doesn't want anybody offering themselves to him out of obligation. That's why he gives us a choice. You know, look at if you're new to this whole Jesus thing and this is kind of overwhelming, I don't blame you. Especially if you're the kind of person that may not be in a culture where everything's about huggy, touchy, kissy, lovey. We don't have perfumes in our area. We save that for France. But can I just say this? There is a God out there that isn't obligated to you by requirement. He's in love with you by choice. And no matter what you do, he won't change his mind. You just have to make up yours. So let me ask you, when you bring your offering of yourself to the Lord, is there love there? Now look at for some, the Holy Spirit is a license for lunacy and it's just a place to try to show off who can be more spiritual than another. But scripturally, the Holy Spirit's primary ministry is a catalyst of intimacy between you and God. That's his whole ministry. He wants to bring you closer to God. And if I'm being led by God's Holy Spirit, I will offer my love. Isn't that what God wanted from the beginning? By the time we get to Deuteronomy chapter 6, after God lays out the law one more time, he says, can I just put it really simple? Jesus will reiterate that when they ask him, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He goes, that's the greatest commandment. So if you were to ask, God, what do you really want from me? My money, my time, my Star Wars action figure collection, my Xbox, my new car, my travel card. What do you want? Because I want your love. That's what I want. You can fight me over all the other stuff, but if you love me, we won't be fighting over anything. That's the truth of it. And now we've gotten two of them, of the three. There is a girl right now, can I just tell you this, that I have had the privilege of watching fall deeply in love with God over this last year. She already liked him a lot. She was already into him. But she has fallen head over heels in love with him. And now she's in India. And out of love for him, she is serving girls who have been trafficked because she loves Jesus. And that's what she says. She says, I love Jesus, so I love them. It's that simple. And God's Holy Spirit is sending her there because she is compelled to go by God. So we have two of the three. We're almost there. Look at that. Remember, there was oil. There was frankincense. What was the other necessary ingredient for all of these offerings? Salt. Salt. Nicely done. That was quick. 
You thought she'd been prompted. She hasn't been, by the way. Now, I do find this interesting in regards to salt, for what it's worth. And you know, you're probably aware of this stuff in regards to frankincense and in regards to things like, let my prayer be for, for you, like, like incense, Psalm 141, um, to verse 2, verse 12. But listen to this in regards to salt. In Numbers chapter 18, verse 19, it's a covenant of salt forever. In Second Chronicles 13.5, it's a forever covenant of salt. I get this idea here, and we know this about salt. Salt has an interesting quality about it. It's the one thing that doesn't seem to burn when you throw it in the fire. That was at least the way that the, the Hebrews viewed it. I know that when you sow a land with salt, it's a permanent destruction of that land. And it makes sense to me. In 2 Kings 2, there's a prophet named Elijah and the water is bitter and the people cannot drink it. And they say, what do we do? And Elisha goes and he takes a bowl of salt and he goes to the source. And he dumps it there and the water's made clean. It's a little bit strange, but God knows what he's doing. Can I just suggest to you that salt speaks of eternity? It's the covenant. And not a covenant that's temporary, but a covenant different from a promise, a covenant that is eternal. And it makes sense. You see, one of the problems, please hear me on this. Before I gave my life to Christ, everything was about the little world I lived in. I grew up in the south side of Chicago in a small area, and my whole life was about that area. I didn't think beyond that area. If it was on telly, I didn't, I didn't even think beyond it because to be honest, it was just surviving. And when you're in survival mode, you really don't think about enlarging your borders or going or whatever. You just think about getting by. Now, some of you are in that place today, perhaps. Your life is rough and man, you're just trying to get by. I mean, you're, you're not trying to thrive. You're just trying to survive. You know, it's like, look, I just want to make it to tomorrow. I want to stay in this country. I want to, I, I don't want to die. I don't want to hate myself. I don't want to go crazy. Whatever it is. But somewhere down the line, God loves you enough to pull you out of that environment and show you a bigger world. And we've used that analogy here, where you're in that plane, and you get out of the overcast, and you get over the overcast, and there you are looking at an infinitely larger horizon that always existed, but you've just never seen it, because you've been too busy wrapped up in the small world of, you know, bus to replacement bus to replacement bus to train to replacement bus to get to where you need to be. And so finally you're in a place and you look and you go, this is so much bigger. England's so much bigger than London. And all of a sudden you realize there's so much more to this. And then you give your life to Jesus Christ and he pulls you beyond this temporary world and he starts showing you a world infinitely larger and eternal. And everything starts to make sense. And you realize why things that people work so hard for, they don't last forever. Hey, you get it and it looks good, but for a while... By the time you can save up to buy that shirt or those jeans or that jacket, that jumper that looks so amazing, it won't be in style again for another 25 years. You'd be better asking your, your, your nan for it now. Because she may already have it and she might give it to you for free. But I realize all of a sudden it's like by the time you can afford the iPhone 5 or 5C, there will be the iPhone 7 that will come out by that point. And, you know, and, and, and the whole point of it is, is that you're constantly chasing something that's temporary. And, of course, clothing stores live on that. You know, yellow, it's the new black. Pink, it's the new yellow. 
plaid is spring. You know, it's amazing how you work. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, I just bought everything from the Gap last year. Now I, none of it works. Because they know it's temporary. And you get brought up to a world beyond that. And you know what? Sometimes just getting older a little bit, you realize, man, I don't know if I can keep chasing that like this. But you get brought up to a world that's eternal. Please hear me. Because this becomes, in my opinion, one of the greatest plights of ministry that we have in the world today. We're so busy caught under the, under the underground, or I'm sorry, caught under the, um, over the overcast that we don't have an eternal quality to what we do now. Now, here at church, you should expect that. But there are a lot of churches you can go and all we're going to talk about is politics, and you can talk about, you know, how to become a nicer person, how to manage your money. And managing money is cool. And being a nicer person is cool. But if you're a nicer person with a lot of money that dies and goes to hell, it's not cool anymore. And from an eternal perspective, everything needs to be dealt with that way. If I'm a Christian, everything changes now. I have to look at it from that perspective. I have to now. I can't look at a sickness the same way. I can't look at a need the same way. And if you think, well, that guy's an opportunist, I would say, yes, I am. Because I would love you enough to tell you about eternity. And please hear me. I love you enough to tell you, my God does not want you going to hell. He died on a cross because he'd rather die than live without you. And he rose again to offer you new life. Don't say no to that. You'd say, well, I've got my life right now. But it's temporary. It's like you're on the northern line, you live at Archway, and you're going to do whatever you can to enjoy the ride as much as you can up to Archway, but it's a temporary ride. Even if you make your way all the way up to High Barnet, they're going to kick you off the train sooner or later. You go, but I like this seat. I've always wanted this seat. I've got a cushion underneath. I've got a blanket. I'm nice and comfy. I've got a pillow behind my head. They're like, get off the train. I've got to clean it. Because it's not your home. It's a temporary place to take you somewhere else. And beloved, whether you know it or not, you're on the bus. And sooner or later, you're getting off. And I love you enough to tell you that there is a God who wants to ensure that the place you get off is bright and good and perfect. There's got to be salt in it. But the problem is, the moment you start bringing in Jesus, all hell breaks loose. And people are like, well, you know, we start a ministry, and it's like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to feed the poor, and we're going to tell them about Jesus. And people go, well, that's kind of cool. And then you go, yeah, well, what happened? Well, we, we told them about Jesus, and they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And people don't applaud that. But we thought, oh, you fed them. That's so nice. And sooner or later, you go, well, we fed the poor. We feed the poor. We're Christians that feed the poor. Wow, that's really cool. And then soon it's, we feed the poor. And all of a sudden, all your salt just got out. Did you see that? You lost all your eternity. The Bible says that whatever you do, in word or in speech or in deed, do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, whatever you do in the Greek literally means whatever you do. That was pretty simple, huh? You're like, well, wait a minute. I go to the toilet in the name of Jesus. I eat breakfast in the name of Jesus. Whatever you do, give him the glory. And I don't want to be gross, but there's sometimes where you're like, yes, thank you, Jesus. You've, you know, the bus has been taking a little extra long and you have to get to that toilet and praise the Lord that there's one when you get there. The reason I say that is, is that like, don't tell me, look at, I do this, for, I do this for the Lord, but this is, look at, can I say, don't do anything for the Lord. Do everything with the Lord. And if you do everything with the Lord, 
You won't be like, I'm a secular carpenter, but I have a ministry elsewhere. Which, by the way, most of the people who say that don't have anything. It drives me mental when I hear that from musicians. Now, I'm not saying that, like, if, you know, you, you know, if you're a dancer, you have to dance to Ave Maria exclusively. What I'm saying is give the Lord the glory for it. Make sure that what you're doing, that the Lord gets the glory. When people go, wow, you're amazing. And you're like, well, the Lord gave it to me. I'm going to give it back to him. Because I want there to be salt. Now, it isn't like the whole meal is salt, but there has to be salt in whatever you do. Does that make sense? And so I ask, is there salt in what you're doing today? Is there any perspective of eternity? Because we're wrapping this around the close. This, the last two are quick. But let me ask you, is there any salt? Listen to this in Colossians 4, 6. It says, let your speech always be seasoned with salt, full of grace, that you may know how to answer each one. Let there be a hint of heaven in everything you do. Let there be a hint of heaven in what you do. Let there be the echo of Jesus. Put some salt in it. Because without the salt, it'll decay. Isn't that true? It's interesting because if I have the love, the salt should come with it. Frankincense, by the way, interesting, this frankincense, there are two offerings you don't put frankincense in. Do you know that? The sin offering and the jealousy offering. You know why? There's just no love involved in that. Okay, so listen. So what happens is if you offer it, I want to make sure that these things are in there. Now, if you bake it in a pan, if you bake it in a covered pan, if you fry it, I don't care what you do with it, I want these things in there. And you're like, well, why would someone bake it in a pan? Because some people are actually that kind of people. They're like, you know what? I decided to bake the piece of pie today. Praise the Lord. But don't miss. Let it always have a hint of heaven in it. Keep your salt. Let it smell like love. And let it come from his spirit. Does that make sense? You're pouring oil on it. Man, let it shine from his spirit. Let it smell like love. Oh, man. And get some salt in there. Let it echo of heaven. Let it, let it sound like heaven. Oh, here it is. The two things we should never put in that are leaven and honey. That's what he tells us here in verse 11, right? He doesn't want this burn. Now listen. Leaven is always spoken of negatively. There's no place in Scripture leaven's a good thing. Leaven, how many of you even know what leaven is, by the way? Okay, how many of you know what yeast is? Okay, well, now you know what leaven is. What leaven is is the stuff that you stick in bread to make it rise. It makes it bigger, but it doesn't give you more bread. It makes the bread bigger. It fills it full of holes. Can I say that's exactly what leaven does? And by the way, do you know it does that by decaying? It's the death that happens that actually causes it to get bigger. I find that interesting. So you could have bread that's like, you know, I mean, my best example is a bag of crisps, right? You ever get a bag of crisps and the thing is like the size of a giant pillow, but there's four crisps in there by the time you're done? You open up and it goes, uh-oh. Right? And you're like, and you're digging in this thing, and you're like, oh, there's one. You know? you know, it's like somehow it just got puffed up. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which, by the way, he spoke about that being sinful doctrine. That of selfish doctrine. Luke chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus said, beware of the Pharisees' leaven. And that, by the way, was hypocrisy. In 1 Corinthians 15, chapter, uh, chapter 15, verses 6 through 8, it tells us that, the, that we should steer clear of the leaven of malice and of wickedness, but rather to observe the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And we're warned in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and in Galatians 5, 4, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Can I suggest to you that leaven represents sin? And God doesn't want you bringing sin to the altar 
in regards to how you should be rewarded for how good you did. Check me out. I robbed this person, but I'm going to give the money to charity. Aren't you proud of me, God? He's like, no. I don't want you hurting anyone for anything. Is there sin involved? And then there's honey. Proverbs 5.3 says, The lips of an immoral woman drip honey. I love that metaphor. Proverbs 25.27 says, It is not good to eat much honey. Here's our parallel. It's not good to eat much honey. And so to seek one's own glory is not good also. And Proverbs 25, the comparison is simple. A little glory is like a little honey. Sweetens the deal. So Mary and Lauren get involved and they want to serve. And they start serving in the Decorate the Pew ministry. It's a brand new ministry that I just came up with. This is, this is not manipulation, it's just an example. And so what happens is they get up and they think it's fall. And they go around and Mary goes, oh, it's Greek. It's got to be big. It's got to be big. It's Greek. Right? And so with that, and, and Lauren being kind of that gentle natured, but she's like, okay. And so she follows her with. And so the two of them go out and they, the first time they go and they collect leaves from all over the place because they're colorful and they glue them together very carefully. They spray them with Windex and then they cover them in each one of the things here so they're hanging from the sides of the pews. Because we have nothing, that week we come in and we're like, oh, Mary, that's really, oh, it's, it's not just me, it's, oh, it's the Lord, it's the Lord, it's me and Lauren and the Lord. And so, and so we're like, oh, all right, oh, Lauren, very well done. Mary, very well done. We love it. The next week they go out, they gather twigs, you know, and now they've done something with like twigs and there are twig wreaths on all the things. And then the less people say it because now they're getting a little used to it. And they're like, oh yeah, those are cool. They're like, it's cool. But they're not as amazed as they were last week. Last week they were like, whoa, what's this? This week they're like, yeah, it's cool. By the third week, people are kind of into it. By the fourth week, they hear nothing anymore. And they start to think, oh man, this isn't worth it. This isn't doing anything. What am I doing? But see, the thing was is that they actually didn't hear it from me. They heard it from the Lord. And they're like, well, we just want to do it. That's where they get the inspiration. But now they're busy trying to make sure they get a little bit of glory with it. And it's a really casual and a very subtle thing, but it's a trap. Every person who serves in your children's ministry will struggle with that, I guarantee you. That serve your children. They love your children, but they want to know that there's a difference being made. The problem is, you know this about children, they could say the most brilliant thing and then go back to being the age they are. And then you think, oh, well, that was for naught. Shantae, and I don't want to pick on her, so let's just say hypothetically, somebody that looks just like her, when she was like five months old, was in a swing. You know, it's kind of when you wind them up and they kind of go back and forth. And she was like, and I'm with a band at the time and we're about to pray and we're going to pray. It's me and my two guys. And all of a sudden, as clear as it is day, an adult voice seems to come out of his voice and she just goes, hey! And we all looked over at the possessed baby and went, ah. And then, uh, she went back to drooling on herself. And it was like, I just remember that moment because that moment's like an, is, is like an icon in my head for the moments where I, like you have this brilliant moment where like you're just like, oh, I feel like we've really connected with the Lord. And, wow, it's such an adult thing to say or to think. And then they go back to drooling on themselves and swinging back in the swing. And, and the reason I say that is, is that sometimes you feel like you're really making headway. You are, you just don't know it because you forget those moments for the other. And if you're a parent, I know you know what I'm talking about. But please hear me. There's a day when God is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And I'm not doing it for anyone else's praise because if you do it for someone else's praise, you will fizzle out. 
You'll start going, yeah, but I, I don't know if anyone appreciates it. I'm like, he does. But if our eyes are off of him and we're not listening to him, we probably won't hear it. And the danger is, you could easily bring your work to God for your glory. Let's be honest. Check out what I've done. You know, you just love it. The moment you start keeping score, you know the glory is involved somewhere. It's like someone's like, you know, I just we went out sharing. Oh, how many people did you save? Did you save? You can't save anyone. Jesus saves. Well, we went out there and one person prayed. Oh, well, I went out there last week and ten people prayed. Or I was out there longer than you were, right? It's like, what's that? That's personal glory is what that is. And you know what that is? That's leaven that gets leavened in and it gets you all puffed up with emptiness. That's what that is. I fast, I pray, I give. Doesn't that just sound like the Pharisee? That's a dangerous place to be. Isaiah 64, 6, and now we're going to, to close, says that our righteousness is but filthy rags to God. And if you'll pardon me for saying, literally it's dirty menstrual cloths. Now, I'm not trying to be gross. I'm just trying to be honest. God says, you want to tell God all the things you've done for him? That's like giving him a bunch of those dirty. I'm saying, God, here's my offering to you. Don't you like it? It's the very emblem of our own uncleanness. Because pride is what keeps us from him. And God's not interested. In Jeremiah 9.23, it says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, nor the mighty man in his strength or might. Not let the rich man in his riches... But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. Now as we bring this to close, let me ask you this first. If you're going to stand before the Lord, he has never demanded that the worshiper be perfect, but what he has demanded is the sacrifices. What is your sacrifice before God? Your works? your behavior, your intentions. You can pick Jesus as your sacrifice today. God made the rules in a way that you cannot but win if you choose Jesus as your Savior and Lord. He's perfect, tempted in every way, yet without sin, conquered death, paid our price on the cross. He is your perfect choice. If you've never accepted the gift of Jesus, I'm going to give you that opportunity today. Then, if you have accepted the gift of Jesus, I want to challenge you. What are you offering to God? Are you offering him your love today? Are you thinking that God is really impressed with things that are temporary, that have no way attached to his name? You really think that what God's looking for are just nice people doing nice things? What God is looking for are people that are attached to and impacting the world, attached to eternity and impacting the world for eternity. That's what he's looking for. Because he's a God who does permanent solutions. So let me ask you, believers, Followers of Jesus Christ, is there oil in your offering? Saying, Lord, I can't do any of this without you, but by your power, do great things through me. Is there oil in your offering today? Let me ask you, is there frankincense in your offering? Is there an intimacy that says, oh, Lord God, out of love for you, do whatever you want through me? Are you still trying to please him? Do you know what it's like to delight in his delight? It's amazing. Is there salt in your offering? 
Is there that, oh Lord God, make this eternal, not just something nice for the moment. And with that, I don't want to put any of my own glory in this. This isn't for my fame. This is for you to be renowned, not me. I don't want any honey. I don't want any sinful intention for this to be selfish or self-seeking or self-exalting. I want this leavenless. I want this honeyless. And I want this to be, as you say here, a sweet aroma unto you. What's interesting is as you offered it, a portion was lifted up to the Lord and the rest went then to bless the church. Can I just say, as you offer yourself to the Lord, He's going to use you to bless each other. Because that's what He's intended. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you today for my dear brothers and sisters in this room. Lord, who have weathered the rain and the transportation, be it by their own or by public or whatever. Some who have risked coming into a building that they're unfamiliar with to people they've never met before. And in this particular place today, Lord, I know you are seeking those who will worship you in spirit and in truth. And I pray, Lord, right now that you would minister to our hearts. Maybe there's some in this room and they're just like, but you don't know the struggles I have. You don't know the hard times I'm going through. You don't know the rough things. And you're right, I don't, but he does. But I do know this. No matter how rough your life is right now, no matter how raging the seas are that you feel your ship is in, having a really good ship in that sea will make it better. And I ask right now, have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? Have you accepted his gift on the cross? Not him asking you to perform for him. This chapter can't be more clear than that. But rather to surrender to him. His gift on the cross. Letting him live inside of you and reform you and reinvent you and transform you from the inside out. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He rose again from the grave on the third day, just like Scripture promised. And He gives you the choice now. Will you accept Him as the gift, the payment for your sins and your guilt so that you could be made right to the Father by His gift? And if you've never accepted that gift or you're not sure you have, the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That if you're willing to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So as I pray this prayer, I ask you to listen. And if you agree at the end, what I ask you to do is give a resounding and confident amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here it is. God, I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. You know that. And I do too. I'm a sinner, and therefore I'm guilty. But you so love me that you sent your Son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross, to pay my sins, to pay my guilt, so that I could receive your forgiveness and innocence in exchange for my guilt.
And Jesus, as you died on the cross, my punishment was fully accounted for. And as you rose from the grave on the third day, you offer me new life now with you as my Lord and my Savior. So I say yes. Yes to the gift of Jesus. Yes to forgiveness. Yes to being cleansed. Yes to being made holy and right with you. I surrender myself to you and I offer you my love. The one thing you ask is for me to trust you and give you my love. And that I do. Help me to do so even more so as I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer and you want to make it your own, say, Amen.